Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Weber. Well, it's February. Pitchers and catchers are getting ready to report to spring training in the professional ranks and some warmer climates. College baseball has already started. And next week, it'll get going in full force. Are you getting ready for your season? You're seeing some pitches? Are you getting yourself in good physical shape? I hope you are. I'm trying to do what I can do to make myself the best prepared umpire I can be. In this episode, we got a few things about such topics. We're going to talk about calling pitches. I was able to go down to Ann Arbor, Michigan this weekend and call a few pitches, and I'll talk about that experience. I got another segment on the player DH, some clarification, some information that I've kind of processed to better understand that rule, which is uh, going to be a bit of a controversial rule uh, this coming spring in high school baseball. I've got another segment on uh, handling coaches and players and how you, you know, interact with them. We're going to talk about types of arguers and how you might handle those types of people. And of course, I've got an umpire spotlight for you. Don Denkinger, longtime American League umpire, will be my focus this week. So sit back, make sure you can hear me just fine for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Let's move on with our second part of how to respond to players and coaches. Last episode, we talked about uh, the difference between an argument and a conflict and how to handle situations that might revolve around such things. Uh, For the second segment this week, uh, let's talk about how to handle arguers and different types of arguers. So you can kind of group arguers into four main types. You've got the chipper, the intimidator, the clasher, and then the legitimate arguer. So if you kind of know who you're dealing with, then you might have a better idea on how to handle them. Let's start first with uh, the chipper. This is the player or the coach um, who doesn't confront you directly, but they make constant little comments uh, throughout the game trying to get you into some kind of confrontation or get under your skin or something. So in baseball, uh, we usually see this as some kind of coach who says something that's annoying uh, from the dugout usually because that's their safer spot. They're not going to come right into your face and say it. So the big thing here is to not allow these kind of comments to really get at you. It's tough, but uh, you got to try to handle it calmly and professionally. And um, instead, early early in the game, if this is happening, which usually it does happen early on, you've got to inform them that you heard them and that you expect to not be hearing them anymore. And if that doesn't solve the situation, then you have your your protocols, right? Um, your warnings, uh, your written warnings. Uh, In high school, you can restrict people to the dugout. Of course, you could use an ejection if that's the last resort, but uh, make sure you take care of those problems uh, as soon as possible. 
that's kind of how you might handle the chipper. The next kind of auger is the intimidator. And uh, I, I'm sure a lot of you have had these kind of people. This is kind of your old school baseball guy, um, the player or coach. And, and usually we're talking about coaches here because if players do such things, then they're usually um, on the road out of the game, right? But anyway, this is the kind of person that thinks that any argument uh, can be won by just being louder or in your face um, than the other guy, all right? So when you do have someone like this, especially if they haven't gone over the line, they're just being, you know, annoying and a little bit out of control um, and trying to intimidate you or yell at you or something like that or being animated in some way. The best thing, be the opposite of what they are, okay? Put a plug in it um, in your into your gut reactions. Um, don't let those spill over, Um Put your arms behind your back, speak in soft tones, uh, repeat their argument back to him or her if it's her, but, you know, usually in baseball it's a guy, right? Um, if that doesn't work uh, and they cross the line, then you got to take the appropriate action, right, uh, which could lead to an ejection. Um, this could uh, range from restricting them to dugout, of course, if you're working a high school game. You can't – that's not how it works in, in the collegiate game, but uh, that is an option in the high school game. Um, written warning, of course, um, because if something does lead to an ejection uh, and you've got to write your report and you've got to talk to your supervisor or your assigner or whoever you're going to report to, uh, having gone through the proper protocols and the channels and the written warnings and everything you're supposed to do and you gave them every opportunity to to behave themselves and then they didn't and then basically your only recourse was was an ejection, that's what you need to do. you got to be able to document all those things, right? But anyway, um, once you've done all those things, um, then it probably just leads to an immediate ejection. And in, in, in today's baseball, that's usually the case with uh, those kind of those kind of individuals and those kind of arguers. So next is the clasher, right? This is the player or coach who just doesn't like you for whatever reason. Maybe you've had some history with them. Uh, and no matter what you do, there's some kind of confrontation with them all the time. There's always some kind of issue. So before you get to that contest, you got to prepare yourself mentally, um, knowing that this person's there and there might be some kind of issue, right? Except that it's not going to be like it is with everybody else that you umpire for. That There's probably going to be something going on. Don't look for it, but be ready for it, all right? So the problem here is that it feels like it's more personal whenever they might say something to you or argue with you, more so than any of these other types of arguers that we're talking about. So you've got to be even more on guard to keep your emotions under control. And um, you know your best tool against this kind of person is your professionalism and your courtesy and your protocols, and once again, and if that doesn't work then uh then you have your ejection i guess but you can't make it a personal thing because you don't want that coming across in uh, your report or if uh, anything gets back to your supervisor or assigner and then the final um, type of arguer we might encounter which is unfortunately not the one we encounter too often is the legitimate arguer this is the the coach or or, or a player who who has a legitimate argument you know and um 
you got to understand that the legitimate arguer will likely give you the benefit of the doubt many times throughout a game. Okay. Um, they usually only come out um, if they really believe that there's a case or something, there's something going on, right? And so you definitely need to understand that that's what they are and be res- more respectful and professional to them for voicing their displeasure and give them a little, little more rope because, you know, they're doing things the right way. And, um, you know, try not to be chippy or intimidating or things like that to them uh, because, you know, they've earned to not have that happen to them, right? So the worst thing you can do with them is to escalate it into something else and, you know, make it into a big argument. You've got to just handle it, answer the questions, and go on. If, if this is the kind of person we had to deal with all the time, there'd probably be a lot more people umpiring. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. But the big thing here is to not start something bigger with a legitimate arguer. You've got to be able to recognize that that is what they are. So once you, in your mind, hopefully fairly quickly, have identified the kind of arguer that you're dealing with, there's some things you need to do to manage the conversation. So first, pause before responding. All right, Let the other person get more words in if they want to. All right, Don't cut them off or, or her. Um, that only gets them more worked up. And in responding, when you have the opportunity, after you let them talk first, avoid using words like but and however, because they usually cancel out the first part of a sentence like, but, blah, 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 however, that kind of stuff. That doesn't, that, you know, that lessens the message. You basically want to say, I understand the situation, but we're going to have to, and then tell them what you're going to have to do. Uh, that will lessen the words, but. So I understand the situation. But we're going to have to do this, all right? Um, saying that you understand, that you hear what they're saying, um, even sometimes if you don't completely understand what they're talking about, that at least allows them to think that you are you are listening to them. You, you do care about what they're concerned about and that you are trying to rationalize the situation, all right? So that's the first step. Second thing, if a coach or a player is pleading, Listen to that person, all right? If a reply is necessary, um, reply with an even tone. You know, be brief. Do not use sarcasm or put-downs. Acknowledge that you heard and you understood the complaint. Uh, that That's not an admission of guilt or error on your part. It, it merely shows that, that you're listening. Many times all the person wants is to be heard. A lot of times they do come out there and they know you're probably not going to change the call. They just want you to know that, hey, this is what I thought. Hopefully it'll go better my it'll go my way next time. That's what they're hoping. Hopefully maybe you'll see it differently because I told you something that I saw. That's what they want. Okay? Next thing. You may be able to smile or use humor to diffuse a situation potentially. Um, this is a tricky thing. All right. Um, you got to be careful with this. Uh, what you think might be funny may not be to the other person. Uh, so that could definitely add some problems to it. However, smiles and a deflective word can work in the heat of a battle with the right types of people. So an umpire who can chuckle or smile is in control, right? An umpire who can't see the humor in a situation may be perceived as you know, uptight. 
However, umpires shouldn't, you know, be you know, they're telling jokes, right? We're not comedians here. It's it's too dangerous because people differ in what they think is funny, all right? And they think that you're making light of the situation. But if you have that ability and you have that um, um, wherewithal of understanding the situation, that might be something that you might put in your toolkit and be able to use. If you don't think you can do it, then then don't go with that because you'll probably just make the situation um, worse. So we certainly don't want to do that. And then the last thing that you don't want to do is say, it's just a game. All right. So that that really gets people worked up, especially coaches, especially the higher level you work if, if you're working college ball and it's their full time job, because to them, it's not just a game. All right. And basically that's saying, I don't care. This doesn't really matter. It's not really that important if I get it right or wrong. OK, maybe in our minds it is just a game. And sometimes that is something we need to tell ourselves to ease a situation. You know, it is just baseball. All right. Uh, but uh, we want them to think that we have our full attention on, which we should have our full attention on the situation. So um, that that can be demeaning to certain people and certain coaches. So we definitely don't want to be saying that. So that's what I've got for this week as far as you know, responding to players and coaches. I'm going to have some other stuff next week uh, on the same topic. And um, it'll probably be uh, an ongoing little segment for the next few weeks. Uh, so until next week, uh, uh, hopefully those things you know, put some good thoughts in your mind about how you might handle some coaches and some p- players in your, your games for the upcoming season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So if you happen to follow the Hammer the and Umpire Podcast Facebook page, you might have noticed that I posted a couple pictures from an experience I had this past weekend um, calling some balls and strikes uh, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I, I was able to get this experience because Corey Ray, who um, I have had the pleasure of working my first state final with and and I've gotten to know a little bit over the last few years um, through umpire camps and different umpiring experiences. And also we're scheduled to work um, so, uh, my first Division One game of this spring together. Uh, he's the crew chief on that. Uh, anyway, he has his contacts around, and he's got some contacts at the University of Michigan, and he goes down there and calls some um balls and strikes for them for different scrimmages and when they're inside and different things like that. So he asked if I'd like to do it. And I said, sure. Yeah, I'd like to do that because I think it's always really good to um, call some balls and strikes before your actual season. That's I try to do that every year. Sometimes I all I can do is get into some of my local high school stuff here. Uh, sometimes I, I am able to get over to some of the local colleges as well and uh, call some pitches. But I usually manage to do it once or twice before um, my first official games. And if you don't do that, I, I do suggest that you do that. Um, anything is better than nothing. All right. So uh, 
basically, I was scheduled to to be down there uh, in the afternoon for a few hours to um, call some, you know, of their their kind of controlled scrimmage inside their big field house uh, on the campus there. And just as I was leaving the house, um, and here in Michigan, of course, you know, it's still wintertime because it's it's February, right? I mean, there's snow on the ground still, and and it was. Oh, 22 degrees when I left my house. I mean, you warm weather people, you're, you're lucky, okay? So um, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Grand Rapids to uh, Ann Arbor. And just as I was leaving, um, I got a text from Wayne, the guy that kind of runs the show down there for the baseball operations, saying, hey, um, they're going to clear off the field because there's snow on it. It's an all-astroturf field there. And uh, they're going to scrimmage outside. I'm like, okay, great, you know. And I had looked at the forecast, and I knew that it was going to be like 30, 31 maybe. Maybe maybe get to 32, <laughs> okay, and uh, not snow and, and not be too windy or anything. Um, so I'm like, all right. I, I didn't put my, my warm stuff in my car, my, my big jacket and everything, because I thought, man, these guys aren't crazy enough to want to go outside, are they? But then again, you know, if, if this was an actual game day in, in March or something like that, they'd play. That's why they have AstroTurf and lights and everything there. So I had to just turn around. I was barely on the road and, and went and got my stuff and had it. And and I've got it down pretty well for what I use um, in cold weather. And I, I usually am reasonably comfortable, especially when you're working the plate. I know, again, for those warm weather guys, I mean, this is not something you got to deal with. You got to deal with other things uh as far as heat and things like that and we have to deal with that too here in the summer because it can get hot here i mean i know some some of you might be thinking oh you're in michigan it never gets hot there hey man it can get 95 degrees here and, and really hot um in the summertime so we got to deal with that too but also we got to deal with the you know 30 some degrees and, and like at the end of the scrimmage that i did outside um there were some snowflakes coming down <laughs> okay so um but if you got layers you got the thermal jacket um you know, once you put on your chest protector and your shin guards and, and you're moving around more, um, you know, your face or your cheeks get a little cold. Um, but it wasn't too bad. My, my ears didn't really feel too cold. I felt pretty good. I mean, you could see your breath coming out and everything. I think the players were more so than than that. Um, they're in and out, of course. But uh, so anyway, um, I went down there and, um, you know, they got me hooked up and got chains and everything went out there i was a little um apprehensive i mean i have called um balls and strikes and some fall ball division one max stuff um before so i've been on the field and with you know all d1 guys and calling ball strikes and, and those that experience went well and um and of course, I've done some stuff during the summer where there's D1 guys, but this is more of a this is a little bit higher level, as we might know, because Michigan's a good program. I mean, they were one win away from winning the College World Series last year. I mean, they're a Power Five conference team and and uh, a top notch program. So you know, this is a, a higher level of D1. Let's just put it that way. And and I I feel like yeah, I can handle it. But you know, you don't really know until. Um, you go down there and do it, right? So, um, like any time you start first starting your balls and strike calling for the new season, it always takes me at least a couple batters or so to kind of get that feel. You know, your timing is not quite there. Um, you know how it is. I mean, you, you got to make sure that you're seeing the ball all the way into the glove and that uh, you're setting up in the slot right and your head height's right and 
trusting your equipment and, you know, just all the things you got to, you know, it, it's kind of like driving a car because you just do it. But it'd be like if you're, you know, driving a manual transmission and you haven't done it in a while. Well, you can still do it, but you got to kind of get used to it for a minute, you know, that kind of thing. So that's the way I always kind of feel when I first put on the gear and stuff and go out and, and do my thing. So, I you know, I, I can't say that it was, you know, that much different than what I might have expected, but... I had to um, really um, bear down and make sure that I was seeing the ball all the way into the catcher's glove. I mean, I had some guys that were throwing pretty well and, and throwing with a little speed and a little movement on their pitches and, you know, some late late break and stuff and, and making sure I'm seeing the whole pitch uh, every moment that I possibly can. Um, making sure, you know, my main concern when I was going in was I didn't want to make sure I, I, I didn't call any pitches too high. You know, like it. You know, my zone. If I'm working a high school game, is a little different than a than a college game. Uh, I'm gonna get more more of a high strike. I'm okay with that, especially if a guy's only throwing, you know, 70 miles an hour. They can hit that. But if a guy's throwing 87 or 90 or something like that, I mean, if there's one, um, you know, a little bit up there, you know, above above the elbows and stuff like that, that that's tough to hit, man. I mean, I know there's guys out there that can hit it, but that's a little bit that's a little bit too high so I can't call that I want to make sure I get the one down low that's reasonable I mean the catchers I was dealing that I were that I was dealing with the first and second string guys they were doing a real nice job and they did a great job all all day and we did about six innings and um I didn't you know I didn't get hit or anything so that was good that was nice I mean you know they had the block several so and it was cold out so I, I appreciated that but uh you know, the, their their glove work was pretty good. There's a few times they're pulling pitches up a little bit, trying to get them, and, and I wasn't getting those. You know, of course, as always is the case, whenever you're calling balls and strikes, there's a few you'd like to have back, you know, either that you, you balled or that you strike that maybe could have gone the other way. And I, I definitely had a few of those, uh, especially early on, probably like that first inning. But I felt like I settled down a little bit, didn't hear um, really any complaining. I don't think they were going to complain anyway. I mean, they are trying to kind of win their – they're a little scrimmage, but it's more of a practice kind of atmosphere, I guess. Um, so I, overall, it went pretty well, and I was pleased with how I did. I mean, I felt like if I did it again, I could do a little bit better. You know, the two uh, three-man D1 games I've got this year, I'm on you know first base for one and, and third base for the other. So I don't have a plate. So if I happen to get the opportunity to work a plate in one of those, I, this um, experience will will help and I'll feel a little more confident. I mean, because that is you know, a big part of umpiring is just being confident that you go out there and do it. I mean, I thought that I could do that, but you know, you don't really know. That's always the case when you're moving from one level to another. And, and some of you guys have experienced that out there at varying degrees. It could be just from, you know, you were working uh, little league ball and now you're working high school ball and uh, you know then you're working sub varsity and then varsity or you're going from high school to collegiate ball or you're moving up different areas of college ball i know there's some guys that are, have worked pro ball out there that listen and and i'm sure that's the case from moving to different areas there as well um but uh yeah i mean you got to do it you got to feel confident but you know you don't know until you're out there and you do it um so i was pleased with that it was a long day um, yeah, they paid me some, you know, cover the gas in a little bit, but, uh, you know, 
it was worth doing. It's not something, something I would do every weekend or something like that because I'm a little bit too far away to do that. But definitely was um, a good experience. I wanted to work on their field there. You know, I was like working on different fields around the state here and wherever I can. So that was all right. I didn't mind being outside in the end. Sometimes when you're inside, you know, they got the artificial light, of course, in there. And I always feel like you see the ball. So well. I remember when I was a player in high school, I didn't. I hated hitting in the gym and stuff like that. I mean, you did it because that's what it was, and it's cold outside. But um, it definitely, uh, definitely is better to be outside because um, that's that's where baseball is played, unless you're in a dome, I guess. So overall, good experience. I, I threw a few pictures up there so you could see, and it probably looks cold because <laughs> it was, you know. But um, always the case here in the cold weather states. Um, if the wind's not blowing and there's a little bit of sunshine, it feels like 50% better. <laughs> so um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be and, and definitely worthwhile to do. And, you know, and, and you've got the field with uh, the proper lines and everything on it and the bases and everything. You can uh, work on getting clearing the catcher, getting up the first baseline. You know, we had a few situations where there was foul balls and guys made nice catches and I was able to get over and get in proper position to do that. Um, working on... Uh, you know, making sure that, you know, runners lane interference or pull foot swipe tag kind of situations, all that kind of stuff. I was able to kind of work on that and kind of move around and get in, into that uh, frame of mind, you know. So just curious what you guys are doing for your preseason prep. Um, do you like to see some pitches or how do you go about doing that? What is your 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 methods and uh, to the madness, I guess? Feel free to tweet that to me at Kevin R. Weber, one being Weber on Twitter. And uh, you can email it to me, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. Or certainly leave a message or comment or something on the Facebook page, which is at The Hammer Podcast. So anyway, I feel like I'm a little bit closer to being ready for the season. I got to see some more pitches sometime before my first games in March. But um, I'm on the way to that. So, we've had a couple of segments already in past episodes on the new 2020 National Federation of High School Player DH rule. And um, I'm certainly not trying to beat a dead horse, but I thought I understood the rule a little bit better than what I did. I've read the rule book. I've read um, articles about it. I've got a little, uh, you know, mini book about it. Um, and when I went to my one of my first association meetings, we had um, a little segment on that in one of the training sessions, and everybody seemed to understand. Yeah, oh yeah, we I understand that. No questions. And I thought, okay, cool. You know, this is gonna not be too bad. You know, this maybe will go pretty smoothly. Then in our last association meeting, we um, we had a lot more of a disagreement about the implementation of the rule and uh, what you can and can't do with the player DH. And um, I definitely got a little bit of an education on it. I think I understand a little bit more. But there's a few things I wanted to point out because this is going to be tricky for a lot of people this year, um, for the umpires, obviously, but also for coaches. Um, and hopefully we'll have some coaches that actually read it and understand it, but there, there is going to be confusion. And so the umpires on the field have to be on the same page. Uh, their associations have to be on the same page and, um, they got to really know the rule and be able to, 
clearly uh, describe what is legal and not legal to the coaches and do some preventative officiating uh, to make sure that you don't get some crazy situation that you could have possibly avoided. All right. So this little segment here is trying to maybe point out a few things that could be a tricky situation that maybe you're not aware of that you can hopefully avoid in this upcoming season. So first, I think it's important that at your plate meetings, if you're running the show, you're the you're the plate umpire. You got to make sure you clearly understand what uh, lineup each head coach is trying to to run out to you. Are they doing a, a straight nine? I mean, that's our easiest thing. We hope they do that a lot, but we know that's not always the case. Are they going to do the traditional DH? And, and you should just make sure you, you clear this up with people. Or are they doing the new player DH? And if they are, um, you know, there, there are some things that hopefully they're aware of. Um, so that's going to be the tricky thing. So hopefully we're, we're pretty good on straight nine and, and traditional DH. We've been doing that for years, okay? The biggest thing is... Um, that when they're doing the player DH, you know, you got somebody, they're the pitcher in the DH or the, the first baseman in the, D, in the DH, whatever it might be. If they are substituted for offensively, that player DH, their pinch run for, their pinch hit for, then the DH is gone. It's over. It's just like it's a, now you've got like a straight nine, basically. Okay. I wasn't quite understanding that i thought there might be a little more wiggle room with that and i think sometimes with um with guys that uh, work college ball with the ncaa dh rule which is a pretty complicated rule and if you aren't familiar with that uh, you should look it up and, and see what i'm talking about it's like almost three pages in the rule book all right uh, i think sometimes we get a little bit more confused with that so the thing is though with this player dh Obviously, um, let's say the guy's playing first base, Smith. He, he's the first baseman, and he's the slash DH, right? So in the first inning, you know, he's playing first base. He might play there for several innings, but probably at least one, right? Because otherwise, why would you do that? Um, you could just have some other – you could have the old school DH, the traditional. So you can have as many substitutes as you want uh, coming in and playing first base, and Smith can continue to be the – slash dh you know keep hitting um so the defensive role may be substituted by a legal substitute but only the starting player in dh can ever occupy that dh role nobody else can come in and be the dh like you can in the traditional one right they just kind of take over the dh spot can't do that with this player dh all right other things to keep in mind if another player substitutes into the defensive role the original player DH may re-enter defensively one time and retain the player DH status. Okay, that counts as the starter's re-entry. So Smith starts at the, as a first baseman. He plays first, and then a bunch of other guys come in there. Smith can re-enter later in the game as the first baseman again, and then he's basically the first baseman's last DH again. Um, that's different than the traditional thing. Something to definitely keep in mind. Hopefully you're aware of that. So say, for example, that Davis starts as the first baseman slash DH in the number four spot in the lineup. In the second inning, Jackson takes the defensive role. Davis continues as the DH. In the third inning, 
Davis re-enters at first base. Jackson, as a substitute, he doesn't have any re-entry rights, and he's done for the rest of the game. Another substitute could take the defensive role and shift Davis back to the DH role only. He wouldn't be able to come back in as the first baseman because he already did that once, right? If that substitute or another substitute pinch hits or pinch runs, not only is the DH role terminated, but Davis has already used his reentry rights and he cannot come back into the game in any capacity. Hopefully that makes some sense, okay? Uh, but that is one of the options here. Let's think of another scenario. Let's say in the second inning, another player bats for the starting player DH, thus ending the DH role. Is it still possible for the starting player DH to re-enter? The answer is yes, okay? Provided the starting player DH has not had a substitute in the defensive role and then return to the defensive role. He still has re-entry rights, okay? But once someone bats for the starting player uh, slash DH, the DH role is terminated for the remainder of the game. So the re-entry uh, would be a standard you know, re-entry, basically. So say, for example, that Davis starts as the first baseman slash DH in the four spot in the lineup, like we had before. In the second inning, Jackson takes the defensive role. Davis continues as a DH. In the sixth inning of a tie game, Davis gets a double. The coach decides to have the speedier Jackson pinch run for Davis. That terminates the DH role for the remainder of the game. As a starter, Davis still has re-entry rights. But if he does so, he re-enters as a standard player on defense and batting in the four spot. Anyway, just a few things to keep in mind there. Um, we talked about uh, that if you do have a player slash DH and they happen to be the pitcher or the catcher, we, uh, that they cannot have a courtesy runner um, because that would be like a pinch runner, right? And, and the DH is gone. We talked about that last week. I think we also mentioned that if a player DH is replaced because of an injury, um, you know, the DH is gone. Um, you can't have somebody else just occupy the DH. That's just the way it goes. Um, then it's you know standard lineup after that. So a few things to keep in mind. Hopefully that's a little clearer. Um, those seem like scenarios that that could happen in some ball games this spring. So keep those things in mind. Keep reading your rule book. Uh, talking to your umpiring colleagues about this and talking through situations. Look at the case book. There's some stuff in there as well. And um, be the knowledgeable person, the most knowledgeable person about this rule uh, every time that you walk on the baseball field uh, this spring. This week's umpire spotlight is Don Denkinger, longtime American League umpire from 1969 to 1998. Denkinger wore uniform number 11 uh, once the American League adopted uniform numbers in 1980. Uh, Denkinger was a very accomplished umpire, but unfortunately for him, he is known for his infamous call in Game 6 of the 1985 World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals. 
in which uh, that call has been known from here on out as the call. Anyway, Dinkinger was from Cedar Falls, Iowa, or is, and uh, he attended Wartburg College, where he was on the wrestling team. He was a solid athlete uh, through school. He became interested in umpiring um, while serving in the Army uh, from 1957 to 1959. He was down in uh, the Daytona Beach area in Florida and decided to uh, go to umpire school, and he finished top of his class in a class of 85 students. So he began umpiring in the minor leagues in 1960, and he joined the American League staff in April of 1969 and became the NAL crew chief in 1977. Um, in 75, Dinkiker was one of the first American League umpires to switch from the outside chest protector to the inside chest protector, which was you know used exclusively in the National League um, at that time. Um, and had been for decades. Um, all the umpires um, entering the American League in 1977 had to use the inside protector. Umpires, American League umpires prior to um, the 1977 season that were already, you know, big league umpires, were grandfathered and continued to use the outside protector. So Denkiger's last game using the outside protector was game four of the 1974 World Series. He umpired in several World Series over over his career. Um, four, to be exact. Um, 74 was his first one. Then he umpired in the 1980 World Series and the 1985 World Series where he had his infamous call, and then the 1991 World Series. Uh, he served as a crew chief in the last two. Dinker also umpired in um, several All-Star games, 1971, 1976, in 1987. He called balls and strikes for the last game. Uh, he officiated in six American League Championship Series, 1972, 75, 79, 1982, 88, and 1992. And he was a crew chief in 79, 82, 88, and 92. And the 1981 and 1995 AL Division Series, he also worked those. Uh, he was the home plate umpire for the famous 1978 American League East Tiebreaker game. Uh, that uh, Bucky Dent hit the big home run in between the Yankees and the Red Sox. And he was one of seven umpires to work two perfect games. He was second base umpire when Len Barker threw a perfect game uh, May 15, 1981. And he was a first base umpire when Kenny Rogers threw a perfect game on July 28, 1994. Um, also, he was the home plate umpire for Nolan Ryan's sixth no-hitter June 11th 1990. So let's talk about the call. And I guess the the biggest thing we can learn from the call is that you should do whatever you possibly can to not make a call at first base from foul territory. I know there are some very rare instances where that is the, the only thing, especially in uh, three and four man mechanics, um, if you really get pushed over there. But you got to fight to stay in fair territory and to make a call from fair territory if, if it's at all possible, okay? Don Denninger was taught to make calls from foul territory. That's the way he was instructed. Um, that was the, um, the go-to, and, and you saw a lot of umpires back in, in that time and before um, make calls like that. And um, a lot of times you can get away with it. But uh, 
obviously this kind of situation is is the reason why you don't want to do that so anyway the first eight innings of that game in the 1985 world series were pretty uneventful there was no disputed calls no hassling on either side the umpires were doing a good job remaining unnoticed which is what all umpires want to do right and it was a one nothing game um heading to the bottom of the ninth uh the cardinals had gotten their single run back in the eighth when brian harper uh singled in a run all right so the Cardinals had taken the field in the ninth inning that season 97 times with the lead. And they had won all 97 times. The main reason being that they had rookie Todd Worrell, the hard-throwing right-hander. Okay, So they were expecting to win this ball game. Anyway, what happened was... Um, there was a bit of gamemanship going on. Kansas City ma- manager Dick Hauser uh, sent out Daryl Motley, a righty, to pinch hit uh, against the lefty Ken Daly. And then uh, St. Louis um, manager Whitey Herzog uh, countered with um, the right-hand throwing Warrell. And then Hauser swapped out Motley for the left-handed hitting uh, George Orta to face Warrell. So, you know. It seemed like a pretty good matchup for Warrell. Orta was not necessarily the best hitter that was out there. So Warrell's fourth pitch, um, he had an 0-2 count on him, and Orta chopped a high fastball to the right side. And as it bounced along the AstroTurf there, um, Cardinals first baseman Jack Clark uh, went to his right to get the ball with both hands, and Warrell charged past him on the way to cover first base, running hard. And Orta sprinted down the line, you know, because it's the World Series as hard as he could. And Worrell stopped on the bag. Clark tossed the ball to him. He caught it. Orrell planted his right foot on the base and then tumbled to the ground. An instant later, um, from about eight feet away, um, Denger spread both arms out twice quickly. Then the third time, safe. Replay clearly showed uh, from a couple different angles that uh, he was out by half a step. And I'm sure that soon after the, the ensuing arguments and when Whitey Herzog came out, the Don Denkinger knew that there was a, a chance that he missed that call. He didn't really find out until after the game. But I'm sure he was also uh, kind of hoping that the Cardinals will figure it out and win it, and then he's off the hook. But the baseball gods were not with him that day, and the worst possible scenario happened. They ended up losing that game. And then the Cardinals fell apart and ended up losing Game 7 as well uh, and losing the entire World Series. Uh, and certainly Denger, uh, who is still alive nowadays, is, is thinking about that. I'm sure he thinks about it probably every week at some point or another. It might pop up uh, in his mind. I'm sure for the Cardinal players on that team, it's a lot easier to believe that they didn't lose that World Series, that it was taken from them from the umpire. But if you do recall, or if you're too young and you don't recall and weren't watching the game, uh, there were several things that the Cardinals did to shoot themselves in the foot um, several times. Uh, they had their chance to win the, those games, uh, but they certainly did did not play well. If you remember in that inning, there was a, a foul ball to the right side, and uh, Jack Clark and Daryl Porter, the catcher, uh, were over by the dugout. And neither one of them can catch a ball. And then that was on Steve Balboni, and he ended up getting a hit. Uh, then there was a situation where um, they got an out on a bunt from 
Sunberg, I think it was Sunberg that was pinch hitting. And then Worrell throws a wild pitch and moves the guys up to second and third. And, you know, they basically had some opportunities to get some outs there. Then they just fell apart in game seven, ended up getting whooped. And uh, Joaquin Andohar got thrown out because, of course, in that game, he was working first base, so now he moved to the plate. Don Denker had the plate in game seven. He ended up throwing out Herzog. And it was just a it was just a crazy situation. Uh, not exactly what uh, I'm sure Denkinger wanted wanted things to work out like. But nonetheless, he's owned up to those things. You know, I mean, we're human. Um, even the best umpires, and Don Denkinger was a heck of an umpire. They make mistakes, and um, you know, since that time, he's you know been to St. Louis and around you know around the country and signed baseball, saying you know different things about the about the call, and um, there's been some amends. After that, he got death threats, um, all kinds of talk radio stuff was ripping on him. Everybody was saying everything that they could about him that was negative, and he had to take all of that. But he kept umpiring. He didn't quit. I mean, he umpired until 1998, um, even worked another World Series after this, and, uh, you know, kept kept working his trade. I mean, knowing that, you know, you make mistakes. So... That's the way it goes. I think that's a lesson that all of us can learn as well, that uh, you're going to make mistakes out there and, and how you handle it and how you react to it and how you move on for the next call or calls that you've got to make and the next games you've got to umpire. Uh, that really says a lot about you as, as an umpire and also as a person. So keep those things in mind as your seasons will st- be starting soon, uh, that uh, you're probably going to miss some calls and, and the way you react to it is more important than the missed call. So that's our Empire Spotlight this week. Don Denkinger. Once again, thanks for listening to this most recent episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast that I'm producing every week. And I hope to keep doing this as long as possible. Let's see how things get get tied up uh, as the umpiring season gets in full force. But uh, I anticipate that I'm going to have a lot more things to talk about, Um, you know, situations that might happen in my games, um, you know, things that might happen to me or to other umpires uh, that we can learn from. That's kind of the main point here is trying to learn from things. Uh, You see, you know, I talk about mistakes that I make and um, I try to do it in as neutral a way as possible and as honest a way as possible. If I talk about things uh, about other umpires or, or, or whatever, I'm not always going to be naming their names. You maybe have noticed that at some point that I, I'm not going to sit there and call people out. That's not my goal. But uh, just use things as a learning experience. Just like Don Denkinger, right? I mean, he was a great umpire, but uh, you know he blew a call. I mean, we've all blown calls. Uh, unfortunately for him, he did it at uh, the most inopportune time possible. But uh, those are things we can learn from. We can learn how to take plays better at first base and, and not be in foul territory. Uh, he maybe had done that thousands of times before and nothing ever happened. But uh, there's more likelihood that something like that is going to happen if you're taking plays in foul territory. Um, dealing with uh, arguers and um, you know situations in your ballgame, all of us have to do that. But, you know, we can't just avoid it. We've got to have a plan on how we're going to handle that. Um, and also, we just got to have a plan for how we're going to get ourselves mentally and physically ready for the season. You know, are you working out? 
Are, are you stretching? Are you getting your brain working well as far as your rule book and everything? Um, are you seeing some pitches? Make sure you're doing those things and get yourself ready so that the first pitch you see of the season is uh, not in the first game of your season. We don't want that to happen. At least do something out there, right? Um, make sure that you're familiar with that new player DH rule if you're a high school umpire, which I, I know a lot of you are. Uh, that is something that's going to pop up in your game and you want to feel confident that you can handle it properly. Anyway, uh, I'm going to keep working for you. If you got any feedback for me, I, I really do appreciate it. I, I love getting feedback from people. Uh, send me an email, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. Tweet at me, at Kevin R. Weber. Uh, send me a message on the Facebook page, which I, I get more likes and more people joining that every week, which is great. It's uh, at The Hammer Podcast. You're going to search it on uh, Facebook and you should be able to find it without too much trouble. But whatever way is best for you, just get a hold of me and uh, let me know what you like, what you don't like, um, any suggestions for topics. Um, I'm always open to those things. Um, questions you might have. Yeah, I'll give you my opinion. <laughs> and my opinion is based on, well, things I think, but also things I've learned and things that other people have told me. That's basically the whole goal here is to, um, I'm just trying to share the things that I've learned. I mean, I'm not trying to like keep it and lock it away someplace, you know. I want to tell you what I know uh, so that you can be better umpires, so that, you know, if I'm working with you on the field, you're the best umpire you can be because these are the things that other people have taught me. And I want it kind of recorded out there, you know. Someday all of us are, are not going to be doing this and we're not going to be around anymore. And at least maybe this information will be out there for people to uh, listen to and, and maybe be, be a little bit better at this craft and have a little more fun doing it and um, help out the game of baseball that we all love. So until next time, keep calling strikes. <laughs>